You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, everybody. I'm Andrew. Glad to, glad to be here. Um, we're transitioning, pivoting from a spring in the sermon to a summer in the Psalms. Come on. Didn't even plan that. <laughs> Clearly, that's not true. Okay. Uh, it's been incredible uh, to immerse ourselves in Jesus' teachings, but where we're headed next is actually kind of similar to the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways, more than you might think at first glance. And today's psalm in particular has a lot of resonance with, with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so like any great poets and songwriters, the psalms are not just one thing, right? It's a collection of a lot of different types of literature, uh, prose, poetry, and prophecy, for personal use and public use, praise and lament, thanksgiving and, and, thanks, and proclamation, there's wisdom and truth. The Psalms were written for very specific situations, but they meet us and give us language for what we're experiencing right now. And you maybe have experienced that with the Psalms in your life already, or maybe over and over again. Uh, but coming on the heels of our time immersed in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest collection of his teaching, we're going to dig into this prayer book that Jesus actually himself used every single day. Good to know that, right? Every psalm was written before Jesus of Nazareth ever took a breath, yet his character drips from them. It's all over. So we see and we connect with God with psalms by praying, by reading, by reciting, by memorizing these words. So I hope that through this, uh, this summer, we're going to make our way through every psalm in the devotionals. If you follow along with that, you'll make it through all 150 psalms with daily, afternoon, and evening readings. So it's a little more than, uh, than the standard, three, three times a day or one long time a day. And we've actually already read in our devotionals the first 15 psalms. So how many people were trying to catch up with that? Oh, no, I'm a, no show of hands. No show of hands. No, sh- no shame here. But uh, So if you want to like start where we are tomorrow morning, start on Psalm 16, and then maybe try to catch up with the first 15 as you go along. Because I know how I am with Bible reading plans, and coming from behind can be a tough slog. So you just got to plow through where we are and catch up when you're at time. Um, so today, we're beginning with Psalm 1. Thanks to Wade for, for reading it for us. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, actually, uh, but we don't have time to unpack Psalm 2 today. We're just doing the one. But those two psalms serve as an introduction for the whole canon of 150 psalms that we have in Scripture. Uh, And in some ways, the psalms, it is the longest book in the the Bible, but in some ways it's also the most practical, the most useful for our day-to-day lives of faith because it is such a, a practical book that gives us prayers that we can pray that can nourish our life with God as we walk with him. Uh, Eugene Peterson makes a wise observation about Psalm 1 in particular and talking about how it is an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. So I'm going to read that quote. The text that teaches us to pray, talking about Psalm 1, or the Psalms, sorry, the text that teaches us to pray, all of Psalms, doesn't begin with prayer. We are not ready. We are wrapped up in ourselves. We are knocked around by the world. The ways in which we are used to going about our business using our language, dealing with our neighbors, and thinking about God doesn't exactly disqualify us from prayer, but neither do they help much. So Psalm 1 
lays out a path before us, a path acknowledging that maybe we need a a heart check, a a gut check before we try to dive in to these psalms of prayer. We think of the psalms as a book of prayer, but Psalm 1 is a wisdom beatitude. Heard that word before? Beatitude. That prepares us to be praying people. Okay? It's a wisdom beatitude that that prepares us to be praying people. So much like the Sermon on the Mount, Psalm 1 asks us to consider what kind of people we are and what kind of people we are becoming as we prepare to enter into this body of teaching. So, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes. Psalms begin with a Beatitude. You remember the first Beatitude in Matthew 5, perhaps. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then there were eight more Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew's sermon, right? But how does Psalm 1 start? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So, we spent a lot of time at the beginning of Matthew talking about the word blessed and what it means and and all that. So we're going to do a little bit of that today because we just, we just got to do it. We, we just have to. Because blessed is, is an important word in Scripture. And there's multiple words for blessed in Scripture. Um, when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, the word blessed and the way it was talked about in those Beatitudes was a state of being that demonstrates the surprising values and priorities of the kingdom of God. And it was about flourishing, Right? I said that flourishing might be a really good translation for blessed if we wanted to think about it that way. This is what flourishing people look like. In Hebrew, there's a really common prayer formula that begins with the word baruch. And if you've ever been to any Hebrew services, you've probably heard this. Or if you've heard Hebrew prayers, you've heard this. So many Hebrew prayers begin with baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. So if you've ever, if you've ever, you just... You, got, you hear that, Baruch, that first word is blessed, but it's, that's the word blessed that is reserved for God. Blessed are you, God. The blessing that comes from God being God. But this psalm begins with blessed are you, which is a much less common word, a much less common beginning to a prayer. The psalmist uses the word here, which also could be used happy, joyful, flourishing, Walter Brueggemann suggests a good translation is, how joyful is the one? How joyful is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked? So, here, blessed is the one who stays on the right path. Or as Matthew would say in the Sermon on the Mount, the narrow path. That's what we're talking about today. This is the blessed person. So, In this psalm, the narrow path involves avoiding three very dangerous traps, and they all involve our bodies. Moving, stationary, and sitting, right? Walking, standing, and sitting. This is all body stuff, right? I mean, some of them are stationary, but they're still involving our bodies. Sitting is a posture. You're all in a posture right now. It may be a fairly passive one, but that's okay. Standing is also somewhat passive. Walking is a little bit more active. But these postures are important. 
The psalm is cautioning the would-be blessed ones to avoid the company, the influence, and the counsel of people who would have our worst interests in mind, to those who would seek to sabotage our lives. We don't want to go on walks with those people. We don't want to stand and listen to their foolishness, and we don't want to sit and receive life advice from them, right? And there's a rhythm to these three lines that isn't, isn't highlighted in the English translations, but it's a repetition of the word not. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, who does not stand in the way sinners take, who does not sit in the company of mockers. The Hebrew word for not, by the way, is low. So low, low, low. But it's not all not. The whole psalm isn't all about what we're not supposed to do. We've got to talk about what we do do. What does the blessed one do? Verse 2. That was an accident. But those, sorry, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. This is what the blessed one does. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. So rather than investing energy in the ones who would lead us astray, the blessed ones delight in the words, the law, the instruction of the Lord. And the Hebrew word, we're doing Hebrew again, sorry, it's just fun. For meditate is hagah, but it's a word that indicates verbal repetition and rumination like taking pleasure in the sounds and of the words and the syllables that you're saying. Eugene Peterson even points out that in Isaiah chapter 31, this word haga is used to describe the sounds a lion makes over its prey. Hmm, come on. The pleasurable anticipation of taking in the very thing that will make them more strong and swift. I know it's grotesque, but it really communicates how meditating on the things of God can bring actual nourishment to us, right? And it even involves making those sounds of like, hmm, hmm. I'm excited for this. I'm excited to, to see what this meal is going to be like, right? And this meal is a spiritual meal, but it is a meal nonetheless. So blessed is the one who makes the word of God into a meal. That's my translation, I guess. Uh, but after that, we, we move into some word pictures, some really vivid, contrasting word pictures in verse 3 and 4. That person, the blessed one, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. A tree intentionally planted. Actually, the Hebrew word is transplanted. Like, so this was a, a, a tree that was moved to be among the streams of water, where its nourishing life source is always available, and it's bearing fruit exactly when it's supposed to. It's not withering, but it's strong, it's sturdy, it's fruitful, it's prosperous. This is a picture of the blessed one, having rejected the distractions and the advice of the wicked and now focused, meditating, ruminating on the life-giving words of God. And the psalmist spends four times, sorry, four lines, talking about the tree itself, giving vivid description of its location, its function, and its flourishing. 
But you contrast that with verse 4, where the only description of the chaff is that they're light enough to be blown away by the wind. That's all you get. Chaff, it blows away in the wind. The tree, oh, we get this luxurious description. Chaff blows away in the wind. Untethered, unmoored, unproductive. It's a striking contrast between the anchored, grounded, flourishing tree and basically grass clippings. The text invites us to wonder which image fits our lives and our choices. It might be an uncomfortable thing to think about, but that's what the text invited us to. Do I have a life with God that is stable and firm, or am I simply blown about by the wind like dry leaves and grass clippings? Verse 5 gives us a parallel to verse 1. Okay, so we're moving ahead to verse 5, but I want to put it next to verse 1. So blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That was verse 1. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. There's a clear contrast here, right? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Why? Well, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Or stand in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers. I do wish company and assembly were translated exactly the same, but give us a little more parallelism. But a company and an assembly are pretty much the same thing, right? A gathering. Verse 5 gives us an idea of why it is such a bad idea to walk, stand, or sit with the wicked, the sinners, and the mockers, right? Don't stand with them because they won't stand in the judgment. Don't sit in their company because they are not among the company of the righteous. Basically, don't be chaff when you can be a tree. That's the invitation. Don't be chaff. Don't be grass clippings when you can be a tree. None of this is surprising after what we've read, but the contrast is really stark, right? It's very one path, another path. Kind of like Matthew 7 talked about the wide path and the narrow path, right? But now let's turn to our final verse, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So the Lord has been mentioned in the context of the law of the Lord back in verse 2. But this is the first time that the Lord has actually been the subject of a sentence in this psalm so far. We're actually talking about what the Lord is doing, where the Lord is the actor so I think that's worth paying attention to, right? What, what, what is the Lord up to? I think I want to know what the Lord is doing, what he's up to. Okay. What's he doing? His action is this. He watches over the way of the righteous. And notice it says he watches over the way of the righteous. It doesn't say that he watches over the righteous themselves, although, of course, he watches over those righteous ones. But the emphasis here is how he watches over the way. He watches over the path of the righteous. So what does that look like? It might look like removing debris from the path of the righteous, right? Or it could even look so much like Isaiah's vision of preparing the way, lifting up valleys, making low mountains so that the righteous have a way in which to walk, so that the righteous may be flourishing and may move ahead unencumbered. Perhaps that. That's what we're talking about here. 
But I think it's a profound thing for the watchfulness of the Lord to be his defining act in this psalm. His watchfulness, the fact that he's watching us. The idea of the Lord watching over his people will come up again and again in the psalms as well. And it's not a surprise that the way of the wicked leads to destruction, right? That much has been clear since the outset of the psalm, but because it's chaff and it's wickedness, it's foolishness, it's cynicism, and it's all heading towards destruction. That's what the psalmist is telling us. These are words that the psalmist begins this giant catalog with inviting the blessed ones to walk the path of the righteous and to sit in their company. But by the time we get to the end, the blessed one, right, that's how it started, blessed is the one, the blessed one is no longer alone. Verse 5 speaks of them being invited into, like I said, the company of the righteous, a company whose way is watched over by the Lord himself. It's a bit like a journey, right, where the solitary person, having avoided the company of the wicked and taken refuge in the instructions of the Lord, has finally found a home in a community among the righteous. It can be an uncomfortable thing to wonder whether one has found a community in the company of the righteous. We do the best we can. We lean into the communities we create, home groups that we invest in, or even having stake in the broader life of a church like Riverside. Thank you all, by the way. I don't pretend to know for sure whether we here at Riverside reflect fully what the psalmist intended by the assembly of the righteous. I don't pretend to know that for sure. But I sure do hope that we are a community that is on a loving and thoughtful and just and faithful and vibrant and narrow path that is marked out by the way of Jesus and which we walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say that one more time. I hope and I think intentionally move in the direction of us being a community that is loving, thoughtful, just, faithful, vibrant, and on a narrow path that's been marked out by the way of Jesus in which we walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we can do that together, it sure would seem that we are part of the assembly of the righteous, right? It sure would seem that way. And I think it's clear that part of our invitation from God today is to do all we can to be the assembly of righteous. And I'm going to suggest a couple concrete ways that we might walk that path. And the first is this real, real obvious one, straight out, of the, straight out of the psalm, be meditators of the word. Read it over and over. Repeat the words. Mumble the words. Fall in love with the way the syllables feel in your mouth. Memorize the words. Pray the words so much that you find the words being prayed in you, sustaining you, shaping you more fully into the person you've been created to be. It takes a little patience. It takes time. But it's worth it. And we got a lifetime. Let's go for it. But the second way is this, and I admit it might be a little out of the box for some of us, and that is to consider a tree. 
Seriously. Consider a tree. Some of you already know that part of my annual rhythm is to take a quarterly spiritual retreat. So like every 13 weeks, I mark on my calendar, I'm going to spend a day by myself with no agenda other than to connect with God, spend some extra time with Jesus. Okay? And I always begin with the same prayer, the one that's called, drive me deep to face myself. It's a really cool prayer. If you want it, let me know. I'll send it to you. But it almost always begins with a hike in the woods, even in January. It, o- it always begins with a hike in the woods. I go off hiking at a leisurely pace, all the while paying as close attention as possible to what the Holy Spirit might want to say or do. And that's how the day begins. If I find a good spot, whether it's a bench or a stump, I'll sit as still as can be, surrounded by the trees, also surrounded by some chaff, and being reminded of who I belong to. Taking time to be reminded of who I belong to. Don't worship a tree. Don't pray to a tree. But maybe find a tree. Sit in front of it and listen to what the Lord wants to teach you. If you are to be a tree firmly planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season, whose leaves do not wither, perhaps we miss something when we ignore the actual trees all around us. Maybe as you're looking at that tree, some dried leaves or grass clippings will blow past you in the wind, reminding you to stay firmly planted. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Knock until you tried it. In the coming weeks, as we dig into more psalms together, we will find abundant thanksgiving. We'll find some brutal lament, some royal messianic prophecies and oracles. We'll find songs to be sung together in the assembly of the righteous. All of it was written to a particular community at a particular time, but it will all land in our lives in very specific ways as well as we walk through the Psalms. And as we bear witness to the full body of this incredible prayer book that's been given to us, may it take root in your life. Maybe you will be one of the people who reads all 150 Psalms this summer. May that take root in your life. Maybe you will get stuck on one psalm, in a good way, stuck in a good way, by the way, and you will just keep meditating on that one, day in and day out, and you will see that psalm, that particular psalm, bear fruit in your life. So may that take root in your life. May God use every bit of it to plant you firmly by streams of water that we might grow together into, more fully into, the assembly of the righteous. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you for your great mercy. We see this choice before us, the way, the way of the blessed one, the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked. And it may be tempting to think everything about our spiritual life or whether or not we connect with you, God, 
is completely dependent on us. So Lord, remind us in this moment of your mercy and grace, which is always the inviting act, which always initiates the conversation. The invitation to be blessed, the invitation into the righteous comes from you and is a gift from you. So help us to be receivers of that gift, receivers of the gift of salvation, receivers of the gift of a life with you, receivers of a deep and growing relationship with you, receivers of that act of being transplanted by streams of living water with constant access to you and to your nourishing life. Lord, as we think about those gifts, we come to your table to receive those gifts. We come to your table to receive the nourishment of body and blood, of salvation and life, of grace, and of your presence. And as we come to your table, we pray the words your son Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.